Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for bringing us together here, and we thank you for the uh, subject matter that we can learn about uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ means to us and how important it is for us to follow only him. And uh, pray for our teacher that he would be able to express the truths that you have given to him in a way that each one of us can understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, I thought we'd start out this morning, rather than in the Psalms, go to Lamentations. Lamentations. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19 through 26. To look to the book what was that reference again? Uh, Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. I'm actually going to interrupt the paragraph there. Right after Jeremiah. Yeah, right after Jeremiah. And and you get bonus points if you figure how this is re- figure out how this is related to Hebrews chapter twelve. Anybody there? Lamentations chapter three. Go ahead and read it out. Through twenty six. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the whirlwind and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. So does anybody know a little bit of background to that? You, you had uh, that's okay. You can ask a question, yeah. No, I was just going to ask how it relates to chapter 12 and the bonus points. How does it relate to Hebrews chapter 12? Uh, uh, how um, Hebrews 
And we actually get into the final warning passage this morning. And that there, we see that Hebrews has been, uh, who can kind of give me a quick summary of Hebrews? Anybody? Anybody want to? It's only music. Yeah, it's only taking music. Anybody want to venture a, you know, a, a three-sentence description of what Hebrews is about? Who, what is Hebrews about? Very good. The uh, the one of the central themes in Hebrews is to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? And he wants us to understand before he gets to that message. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know who the Son of God is, and how he's the expressed image of God Himself. He wants us to know who the Son of Man is and how in Christ's humanity he could touch all of the areas of our weakness and our injury such that he could truly be the one who stands between God and man as a high priest and could be the only one that ultimately could make the kind of sacrifice that was necessary not just to forgive sin, but to remove the penalty of sin. To actually bring about redemption. Right? So he wants us to know who that Jesus is. Who the Christ is. And then he says, fix your eyes on him. And you do it in such a way that it affects how you live. And he gives a whole history in brief of those who have come before who have that kind of vision and hope and faith right and that their hope was in uh, the being present with God personally right that God loves us so much that he invites us into relation, a personal relationship with him and that that uh, communion is what they long for. They long to be in the presence of God for eternity in his home. So they're looking for the city of God, is one way of saying it, that's actually expressed in Hebrews. Um, so let's, let's read through chapter 12. And I think last week um, I stopped at verse 17. But we're going to read all the way through chapter 12 this week. And uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, next week I won't be here. Um, I'm going to be in it on my way to Atlanta. Um, the week after that, we'll go ahead and finish up in chapter 13 of Hebrews. And I'd like to start a new study with y'all, if you want. Um, you may want to take some time off, I don't know. Uh, but I was, you know, I'll just throw out the idea. I was thinking of the book of Genesis. Doug and I were talking about that. So just kind of ponder on that. Let's go ahead and read through Hebrews chapter 12, because that's where we are today. It says, and I'm reading in the uh, New American Standard. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you are striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, <clears throat> so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. <coughs> Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to a darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was that, uh, was that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, <clears throat> the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which he speaks, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now... He has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What kind of things popped off the page as I was reading through that for y'all? Stars falling out of the sky. Stars falling out of the sky. 
the, the destruction of the current creation, right, the recreation. We just finished uh, Revelation uh, in our study on Friday night, so we got to the happy ending at the end of the story, which is really cool. But what you find out uh, through reading what God has told us about the nature of things is that all things in this creation come to an end. So regardless what science might uh, tell you about the nature of the universe, God tells you very concretely what the nature of the universe is, that it is finite, that it had a beginning, and that it has an end, and that that end will be cataclysmic, and that it will be a shaking such that nothing remains. And you read that in other parts of the Bible. At some point, heaven and earth pass away. When it talks about heaven and earth passing away, everything that we understand as the universe is gone. And we stand before God in the throne room. And subsequent to that, a new heaven and a new earth is created. So God is a creative God, and he desires to express who he is through his creation, and that, and that will continue. But this creation will end. So if your hope is in this creation, it is a, it is a futile hope. Right? That's why our hope is not in this creation. It's in the God who brought about this creation. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things. So that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What cannot be shaken? God. So, God and that which he chooses to be in his presence remains forever. That's our hope. Is that this God, who for no other reason than his good pleasure, created all things and decided to um, not just be like a watchmaker where he builds this really cool you know, device, this machine, winds it up and sends it off and says, be cool and happy, and then is apart from it. Now, God is intimately involved in it. Um, he has communion with his creation. He has communion with his angels. Right? They're in his presence. He has communion with his creation, such that when he speaks, his creation hears and answers. Now, I, I'm summing up a lot of revelation in the, in the Bible when I say that, um, but indeed, uh, God's creation knows him. And it even groans under the current uh, curse of sin that man brought in. And it wasn't just man that brought it in, right? When God cleans house, he cleans house in the heavens and the earth. We find that out in Revelation, right? He brings all to account. And when he creates new, there isn't corruption in, in, in his creation. There isn't sin. The one, the author of sin, is destroyed. He's already cast out. So that's what's coming. Right? Daniel. Could there be a new, a new if his next, the next creation is good, also like this is good, then would there be 
the option for sin to enter that as well? That's a good question. So, is it possible? So, we, we understand that um, in the beginning, God, right? And this pre, pre, uh, precedes all of creation, including the creation of angels. In the beginning, God. And we know that when he created the angels, and then he created the universe as we understand it, um, that the possibility of sin existed. Why did the possibility of sin, of sin exist? Hmm? I'm sorry. Free will. And that the way uh, God chose to uh, express himself in creation um, made free will a part of it. And that means that the possibility of not choosing him was there. Not choosing him and what he says is true, what he says is good, um, that existed. But it was not prescribed. In other words, he didn't say, you will not choose me. This is, this is uh, my understanding of theology. But rather, the possibility existed. And sure enough, there was one who, in his pride, chose to become God. In other words, he said, I don't choose you, I choose me. Now that's a really scary thing. Um, as we look at our lives, and we look at how we have not chosen God, but we've chosen us. We've chosen us to be uh, like God, judging what is good and evil. And we have elevated ourselves above God. That's why when God says, this is how my economy works, there is only one God. There are no others. And oh, by the way, if you, uh, if you put yourself on the throne, you're emptying me of all value. You're taking my name in vain, my person has no place in your kingdom. You know, and he goes on and he gives us the way that things work in his economy. And since he created it, it's his, and that's how it works. <clears throat> and when we rebel against that, uh, bad things happen. And he tells us that in advance. He says, oh, by the way, um, if you follow this course, it leads to death. But if you follow this course, it leads to me. It leads to life. And this is what I desire. I desire that you choose life and not death. I desire that you choose blessing and not cursing. Um, and he makes that really clear so that we can't mistake it. And yet, nonetheless, um, what we find out is that there was one. And he wasn't content with just himself being God. He wanted to uh, rebel against the kingdom and take as many with him as he could. And so that occurred. It occurred in heaven. And it occurred on earth. And what you see is in the end, you see it played all the way out. You see that on earth, it plays to the final battle. And in heaven, um, just to make sure that we understand what the nature of sin is, that one who deceived 
and we fell into sin by deception is bound. And we're given uh, a course of time to fully exercise our free will. And at the end of that course of time, a test is, is put forth. And at the end of that test, God finds out who really has a heart of rebellion and who has a heart of obedience. Who will follow him? And that that which he has promised is for those that follow him. Our inheritance, our portion, is in him. It isn't somewhere else. It isn't something that we can make because we don't have that power. And what happens is, is that all of that, all of the creation fades away and the hearts are tried. That's, that's how it plays out. And so what's happening here is that God's telling us all of this stuff. He tells us in advance so that we'll know that it's true. He tells us that in, in Isaiah. He said, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you the end from the beginning so that you'll know that I'm God and that there is no other <clears throat> and that what I'm telling you is true and you will see the fulfillment of this prophecy that I've given throughout history. You will see it. And we have then the choice. Do we believe? And do we structure our lives in that belief? Or do we turn away? And this is what he says. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So when Christ came, he warned from heaven. He said, you know, this isn't something that you want to have anything to do with anymore. Turn away from that sin and turn to me. That's the, the gospel message that's gone out, right? That God, in his goodness and in his justice and in his righteousness, um, has made a way for us to turn away from sin and turn to him and be redeemed. Not just restored, but actually share in the life of God himself. And I, I can take you to passages that... Tell us what the nature of our life is. It is Christ. It's what it means to be in him. So when we read this, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's saying receive the truth. This is the truth. He's gone to great, um, great length to give you an exposition of who Christ is. And what he's done. And who God the Father is and his plan from before the foundation of the world. What his heart is in putting together not a covenant that is one that we should uh, stand in fear. Like coming to the mountain uh, that cannot be touched as to a blazing fire. So that reference there in verse 18 through 24 of chapter 12 is a reference to Mount Sinai. And if you know the story of the Exodus, you know that the, the people that were a captive, um, that God didn't design them as slaves. He designed them as free people to enter into his inheritance. 
to proclaim who he is to the whole world, they ended up in slavery. And their slavery was a way of salvation for them. If we read the, the story of Genesis, we find out they ended up there um, in Egypt because God provided a way to preserve them and to preserve this family from which the Christ would come. And yet they were there in, in slavery. And God led them out of slavery in a way that no one could confuse that this is God, including Pharaoh. Pharaoh had to admit in his dying breath, yep, this is God. Um, and they come to this mountain, and God actually appeared to them at this mountain. And you read this account in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 19, where they come to the mountain. So in Exodus chapter 19, it says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. That's an incredible image. I don't know if you are aware of how eagles teach their young to fly. Right? They, the young that can't yet fly get onto the, the mother's back and she does this, you know, eagles go really high, does this ascent to the heights and then dumps the, the kid off. And the kid is like, right? no parachute, what do I do? Well, you got wings. This is what you were created for. And before that bird um, is totally out of control and hits the ground, if it's not going to make it, the mother comes in underneath it. She bears him up on eagle's wings. Right? And that through this repeated experience, the bird learns to fly. It doesn't take very long. And there are other, other ways that this occurs, but it all occurs by having um, a little kick out the door. And it occurs um, through a loving attention of the parent. And that's what God's saying here. He's saying... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It's all about coming to God. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this is what Moses was commanded to go and speak to these people that had come out of this incredible captivity through this remarkable experience. God's saying, I did that for you, to bring you to me, and that you are to be a priest among the nations, to bring them to me, because all the earth is mine. That's what God's saying. And yet, we read about this, this, uh, this place where Moses went, as we read on. So, so Moses called all the elders of the people and set them before uh, before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may uh, hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people people to the Lord. The Lord said, also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. So God is preparing to draw near. And let them be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be surely stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Whether the man, whether, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So now you see all this imagery that the author of Hebrews is bringing up. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to them, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. We'll talk about that later. So it came about on the third day when it was morning, and there was, were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us again, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. So what's happening here is that God himself is coming down, to his high priest. So you see a mediator between the people and God. And um, the people are totally terrified of God. Even though they desire to draw into his presence, who he is is so awesome that they would be incinerated in his presence. And they don't want to be incinerated. They don't want a God that is like this. Right, And so when we read about, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was that who, uh, that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So, when you look at where you stand today, that's where you stand. You cannot come to that mountain. Um, It doesn't matter what kind of religious system you put together, you cannot come into the presence of God. And it doesn't even matter how holy your high priest is, unless he is the high priest of God, that can truly mediate and bring you into God's presence. That's a fear, fearful place to be because you're lost. You can't come into God's presence. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So we talked about Esau and or, uh, Cain and Abel, and we talked about, uh, and so what do we know about the blood of Abel? Does anybody remember? They cried out to God. Why did they cry out to God? Pardon? There was injustice there that led to that blood. And what was the what was the nature of the injustice? What occurred? Um, there was a sacrifice that was presented to God, and one sacrifice was acceptable, and another sacrifice wasn't. And the the one whose sacrifice was not acceptable killed the one whose sacrifice was. And that that injustice spoke to God from the ground in which that blood was spilled. And yet we come to God, um, we can't bring a sacrifice that is acceptable. And we killed the very one who brought the acceptable sacrifice. And that blood cries out. And it is better than the blood of Abel. That is the blood of Jesus. It isn't that, and we went through this, uh, was there power in the blood? Was it magical? No. It wasn't magic. It was God working through creation to redeem creation. He actually entered into history and gave his life to conquer death. He gave his life as a penalty for sin. We read that in Peter, 1 Peter. So we know that these things are true. That's, that's how we come into this new covenant. So we're not under the old covenant, a covenant that would uh, be a covenant of terror because we can't come into God's presence, but rather we have come to Mount Zion. And that At Mount Zion, we read that this is the city of the living God. What does the city of the living God mean? The heavenly Jerusalem. What is the city of Portland? What is the city of Fresh Prairie? It's the place where people live, right? Well, this is the city of God. This is the place where God lives. And it says that it's the heavenly Jerusalem. So we understand that what was the center of Jerusalem? The temple. The temple. And if you read uh, the account in Revelation, what you find out is that the new Jerusalem, that there is no, no temple there because it is, the whole city is the temple. It is, God is present there. It is um, on a, a huge scale uh, the same picture that we have of the Holy of Holies. That's why it has streets of gold, because the Holy of Holies is gold layered on the inside. Right? So, what we understand is that this is um, the place where God is, 
and that there you see all of creation, myriads of angels, and the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, those that are actually redeemed and saved, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. It's not this old cultic practice of Judaism and the law that brings us into the presence of God. It is Christ himself. That's what we have come to. And when you come to that, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What is the difference, or is there a difference, between the church of the firstborn Mm -hmm. who are enrolled and the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Are there two different elements here that... Mm -hmm. Um, Anybody want to venture a, a shot at that? Spirits of righteous made perfect may refer to Old Testament saints who are not part of the body of Christ, but they are just to save. Yep, just to save. So we understand uh, salvation um, is through faith, right? And what we saw was uh, in chapter 11 was uh, sometimes it's called the hall of faith. You see, those that through faith believed the promise of God, even though they didn't understand that that was Jesus' demand, but they understood that God was going to redeem them in this way. And they had faith. They had faith in God. Their portion was in the Lord. When we read that out of Jeremiah, what Jeremiah uh, was expressing was that, I believe you, God, when you said that my life is in you, and that I am safe in you, and that I have an inheritance in you. That would be the righteous made perfect. We read all the way through there, and you get through the end of chapter 11, and it said, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So, they're made perfect in the consummation that happened when the church was born in Christ. So we don't understand it in the sense of there's, there is a mystery in the church. But it is a reality in God's kingdom, and that's what you're reading here. That God planned it from the beginning that there would be this kind of completion that would occur. Um, Perfection from those from before the cross and those after the cross. That it's all about the cross. That's the center of history. And when we look out at different um, theories and philosophies and people tell us it's foolish to to say that man is the center of history. all of history and all of the universe and all of these different things, well, what the Bible tells us is, in fact, a man is the center of that. So that's, that's what the Bible tells us. Um, so I would, I would suggest that that's what that's, what that's meaning. Um, so what you see is you see uh, all of the participants um, 
from a human perspective, from Adam on, having opportunity to be with, together with God. That there isn't a separation from those who died before Christ came. So that's always one of the concerns. What about those that didn't you know, know, know what the, the prayer was to pray? You know, because we have this idea that it's the prayer that you pray that turns the crank, that gets you through the machine into, into heaven. It's like, that's not it. It's the heart. And that's why he starts out in this chapter. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is every encumbrance in the sin that so easily entangles us? What, what is that? It all comes down to, to a very, very uh, simple thing. It's your heart believing God. In, chap- in verse 6 of chapter 11 it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So, chapter 4, verse 2, it says that the gospel was preached to those people too, but it wasn't mixed with faith. Right. And so, unbelief is that it tears at every person. That's right. Unbelief, and, and so, what, so what is the attack on you as a Christian? How can you run the race with endurance? What is the attack that's coming against you that would cause you not to run a race well. Because your faith is based on nothing, and that you just you use it as a way to gain the moral compass, and that's fine. So, um, one uh, value of religion in uh, in a modern world is that it uh, is a way that people can express morality. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's the attack. Yeah. And that it isn't really based in any substance or truth. That there really isn't any standard of morality or or real righteousness. Rather, it's something we arbitrarily set as a social uh, construct. And that religion is a way of expressing that. So religion is not a bad thing. So there are those that, you know, take that view. Say, ah, religion's not a bad thing. It's the opiate of the masses. Let's, Let's keep them there. Right, let's keep them updated. Weight, would, would, it's not equivalent to sin. It's uh, like legalism that we... So one of the, one of the things that we do, uh, and I say we, myself included, is we have this idea of a merit system. <clears throat> and that's a lie. Um, it, it comes from the very originator of lies. He said, oh, by the way... Um, Things that are good are, are uh, graded. There's a way of, of gaining merit, right? And that, that the way that you gain that is in you. It's what you do to earn goodness or merit. And so we, almost our whole worldly structure is based on a merit system. Certainly in the Western world we see that. Where um, there is, and, and this is, part of American culture, right? The, was it the Horatio Alger's theory? If you work hard enough, 
um, you will be successful. Right? In other words, you can earn merit based upon your ability. Um, that gets twisted and turned in a lot of different ways. I give an American example. You can twist that and turn it throughout all of history to a variety of different ways into religion, into science, into all sorts of different constructs that it's all about um, you being in control of your destiny, your God, and you have the ability to say what is good and you can earn that. You can accomplish it. You can achieve it. And what God says is, no, I am good and the expression of myself is the declaration of what is right. It is righteousness. And it isn't something that you can earn. It isn't something that you can do through a religious system. You can't become me. But rather, we can enter into communion and you can be like me in the sense of reflection. So he created us in his image. Right? It doesn't elevate us because we don't bring any merit. Rather, it's, it's the glory of God expressed in his creation that gives us value, that gives us merit. But we have this idea that, no, 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 it's the other way around. I bring merit to you, and you approve that. And that's our broken understanding of faith. That by faith, it's a, it's a work. That, by golly, if I, if I think good thoughts enough about this enough, God has to honor that because I've earned it. I've done, I've turned the crank, right? I've said my prayers, I've given my alms, I've done all of these things. And God says, no, 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 no. It's all, it's all about the heart. Do you want to be with me? Do you love righteousness rather than yourself? Um, I, I used to ask people this question when I would, you know, I'd do these coffee shop conversation things. And so I'd be at the coffee shop and I'd be having coffee with somebody and I'd say, so would you choose Jesus if he didn't win? So we understand there's this cosmic battle going on and there's Satan and God, good and evil. Um, and in the end, evil triumphs. Right? Now, we all know that that's not true because Hollywood tells us that, right? No. But what if it wasn't about this battle of good and evil like that? And, well, I'll go there in a second. But what if, what if in the end, Satan wins and all that is good is extinguished? Would you still choose Jesus? If he wasn't the victor? If he couldn't bring you to a place of no tears and no suffering? Would you still choose him? And that, what I'm asking people is, is if he did nothing for you other than to be in his presence, would you still want to be there? You'd be different, though, in your example. You'd be so different, you can't really answer it. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a question you can't answer, right? Uh, and I, I acknowledge that. But what I'm trying to do is get people's head a little bit different. It's like so many times... We choose God because uh, of what we get rather than who he is. And see, this is what faith is. 
Faith is believing God because of who he is. That's what it said. In order to please God, we must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We reverse that. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Right? We see that, and sure enough, he is. Because if you are together with God, in fact, evil doesn't triumph. Good is the nature of uh, God's creation and God's reality. Um, So to be there is to be blessed and not cursed. To be in communion with God is blessing. It is goodness. It is a reward. Um, But if you're there because you're only looking for the reward, then I would say that your faith isn't right. And that's some of the challenges that the author of Hebrews presents for us. These are the challenges that we come up with every day because your faith is tried every single day. Well, I think about the fact that, um, you know, we, we might be thinking in terms of our eternal reward, but that actually is so far off that, right. you know, to dwell on that is, I mean, it's good because it's a hope. Right. But in reality... What, a prosperity uh, preacher or somebody else who says, come to Jesus because everything will be okay? Right. We all know life is not okay. Well, a lot of people want to believe that message, though. Well, yeah. But if you're actually living life, and regardless of whether, you know, I mean... Right. So so we understand if you, if you look realistically at the world, you'll see that the world can't promise you anything right. and deliver ultimately. It can deliver a short term, which is why people use drugs. It's a chase, right? You're chasing some kind of goodness or blessing. People don't do it because they're thinking, oh, I want to ruin my life today. They do it because they think it will give them, it will help them, it will bless them, and that's why they do it. Um, But that's a lie. There isn't anything in this world that can ultimately deliver. The only thing that can ever provide life is the author of life himself. Somebody else's hand. I do. I think, you know, the world we live in, I think we would choose Jesus because um, wickedness does triumph in this world and we still choose Jesus. It does. But it's interesting. It's interesting, though, that um, no matter what the world throws at you, um, you can be whole and, and safe in God. David cried out, he said, you know, I would have despaired if I had not seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. In other words, our hope actually gives us um, internally shalom, right? So that you can be in prison and be totally free. Christ said, it is for freedom that I came to set you free. What is that all about? That's just, you know, it's not one of those puzzling statements that Paul said. It's about how what God is truly doing for us is to set us free to choose him, to draw near. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. Let us draw near. He says that repeatedly, and that's the whole point of Hebrews. <clears throat> and what I would say the last warning or admonishment that this author gives before he goes into his final encouragement is 
See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And sometimes when he speaks, he speaks in discipline. Tells us a little bit about that. That it's God's work um, to bring you close to him. And sometimes that means some things have to be cut off. It's like, you know, he's making a a beautiful marble sculpture and, and it starts out this huge chunk of rock. A lot of rock gets removed to make that beautiful structure at the end, that beautiful sculpture. So we understand that discipline is good. And we need to not lose hope. That's what it says here. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't get discouraged. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. We'll get into how you how your confidence can be uh, bolstered in that. And we'll get into issues of ethics and morality in chapter 13 as a summation. But he's now winding down his message in Hebrews. It's not totally wound down yet. There are still big chunks in here that are, are great pearls or you know, gemstones that we need to mine out. But nonetheless, what you've seen is that this exposition is completing Christ. Now we need to understand how Christ doesn't change. That that foundation that we have is truly sure. So that's where we're going next. And we'll get there in two weeks. So I'll go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen next week. Uh, I'll discuss that in a second. Lord, uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. Um, as we look at, uh, as portrayed, the, the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, <clears throat> and what they mean in the um, understanding you and drawing near to you, um, Lord, we do desire to draw near to you. Um, Lord, as we have so many things broken in our thinking, uh, mainly because we've come from brokenness, and that it's so uh, etched within us, it's very difficult to change those thoughts and those ways. But Lord, we know that our thoughts and our ways change as a result of a changed heart. So Lord, we just ask that you continue to work in changing our heart, whether we understand it or not, whether we see it as, as challenging and hard or not. Lord, we desire that you indeed would change our hearts and that that would have such a profound impact on our lives that we would live differently for you in this world and ultimately with you in in your kingdom uh, as it will exist for eternity, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we uh, thank you for the break in the rain at the moment. Um, Although we understand a great storm is yet to come, uh, Lord, we see that both uh, spiritually as well as physically in our presence. Lord, we ask for your protection in this time of great challenge. Lord, we ask for your provision. Um, because we know that every every good thing comes from your hand and from your word. And so, Lord, help us draw near to that in these times of trial and challenge. Uh, protect us and provide for us. And, Lord, we're so grateful for the, your service to us. Lord Jesus, that which you've given in order to make it possible for us to be together with you. Lord, we thank you for that and praise you for that. And, Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as he brings message to those that maybe have never heard the gospel. 
and uh, we ask that it be clear that they would hear and, and respond. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would empower your, through your Holy Spirit um, your servants. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and all of this we pray in your name. Amen.